Hey, everybody. Um, obviously, it's me. Uh, I just wanted to let you know that we recorded this episode last week. Um, it holds up absolutely fine. We covered a lot of uh, territory, but there's uh, one bit where we weren't talking as if Bibi Netanyahu had, in fact, been officially ousted from the prime ministership and leadership. And so I just didn't want people to think that we didn't know that. It's just that due to the vagaries of the space-time continuum, we couldn't know it when we recorded it. So um, I'm acknowledging that here. Um, I think you'll enjoy the conversation. And um, uh, thanks for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! <laughs> Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Swing by the dispatch.com to check out our free wares and then kick the tires a little bit and then maybe come uh, decide to become a uh, paid member of the Dispatch community. Um, you, we think you'll be glad you did. All right. So today we have a return guest who volunteered his services. Uh, there is no video recording of this, Tev, but he just waved at me. Uh, I'm, of course, uh, oh, he's holding up five fingers because this is his fifth appearance. I, I think that's my reading of the semiotics of the situation. Um, and uh, so he gets his gold jacket. Uh, we are, um, we're still in the process of working out what the gold jacket is going to look like. Um, and, uh, and hopefully at some point we'll get him to the point where he gets the sandwich named after him. Um, because, um, uh, even though he's, uh, memory serves lactose intolerant and kosher, he is, um, a student of the, the, the fine cuisines of my people and, um, would probably come up with something good. Not that, that mayo and American thing or whatever it was that Garrity was talking about, but, um, uh, also, Tev's got a new job. Anyway, Tevi Troy, welcome back to The Remnant. Thanks for having me. I've been clearing space in my closet for the gold jacket, which I'm excited about. Excellent. I did indeed hold up five fingers as a signal privately to you. Last time, I also tried to help you out on the video that I know that other people are not seeing. So I, I won't give you any more clues that way. And uh, in terms of lactose intolerant and kosher, not a problem because you can't mix milk and meat. So I can give you a great kosher sandwich that you can name after me that won't have any cheese products and will be fine for me to eat and everyone to enjoy. All right, fair enough, fair enough. I do remember back in the old days, you having cheese-free pizza, which was sort of the culinary equivalent of one hand clapping. I just never really got my head around it. Um, and you are, you are now, you've got a new gig at, at tell me what, what your new title is. I don't want to butcher it. I'm, I'm a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Excellent. And I'm focusing on the presidency, as you know, an interest of mine. And uh, I think both sides, uh, all parties, everyone has an interest in maintaining and protecting the presidency as an important American institution and a protector against anti-democratic tendencies from the left and the right. So go presidency and let's see if we can make the presidency work for us uh, going forward in a good way. All right. Well, since you brought it up. Um, and people should know, Tebby's written a bunch of books. He's sort of a presidential historian. He also does... Um, he worked for George W. Bush in a number of capacities, and um, uh, I'm not going to call you a 
crave and lick spittle and voluptuary of power or anything like that. But could could we perhaps argue that the presidency has gotten too powerful? And oh, that, absolutely. Um, okay. Yeah, it has got, gotten too powerful. I think what I'm trying to argue for is the appropriate role of the presidency in our constitutional system. And if the presidency gets too powerful, it can be a push towards authoritarianism on the right or socialism on the left. We don't want that. Uh, I want laws to come from Congress. I'm with you in Yuval Levin on this, which is Congress has to make the laws. I think the administrative state has gotten too big. I don't think every decision that Congress can't make should be deferred to the presidency. And again, I want an appropriate depiction of what the president's roles should be. And I think that's the best protection of our democratic system and other democratic systems as well, because they look to us as well. So one of the things you often hear about, since again, I didn't plan on talking about the presidency, and as, as you can attest, you will test, you would testify accurately under oath that we didn't do an enormous amount of planning for this conversation in the first place. Um, but so one of my gripes is, I have many, as you know, um, but one of my gripes is you have an enormous number of people out there. You, you, you tell me if I'm being unfairly or overly, unfairly or overly broad. There are an enormous number of people out there who do not like the electoral college. And they say, we're the only country in the world that uses an electoral college um, or an institution like an electoral college, which is a little bit of a faulty or weaker statement. But um, in my rejoinder about all that is that most countries have parliamentary systems. Very few have our kind of presidential system. And virtually all of, everyone keeps, all the critics of the electoral college like to say, we need, we just need to have direct elections of our president. And I'm like, okay, quick name other countries that have direct elections of a leader like the president of the United States, because prime ministers don't have the same powers as the U S president, U S president in our presidential system. I think Brazil has a similar system and there's like one or two others, but our president is both national is both head of state and head of government um, and has powers that are different than prime minister's powers. Sometimes they're weaker, sometimes they're more powerful, but they're just different. And no country I'm aware of directly elects a central unified singular leader without some intermediating, inst intermediating institutions about it, in it. None of the Western European democracies do it that way. Um, they may not have electoral colleges, but they have party nominating conventions and they have to agree internally on how to get their, their, their person who's going to be their stand in for the prime ministership or whatever, or even the, for the president. Um, do you think that the way, I mean, do you think if you gave the, if you gave all these people, if you gave the baby its bottle to all the people who hate the electoral college and argued for instead direct elections of us presidents by popular vote. Do you think that would make the presidency worse or better, and why? Okay, so I agree with your critique. I look at the example of Israel, for example, which has a parliament, parliamentary system and went to direct election and found it such a disaster that it went away from direct election, so it went back to parliamentary system, which, again, is also flawed because, as you see, they have gone through four elections before getting uh, any resolution, which they may be, be close to. We're going to get to all that. Trust me. I mean, you are right. I know. You are the, the, <laughs> to the extent we did prep, that's what uh, we were going to talk about. The Jews. You're going to explain the Jews to us. But go on. Uh, but I, I look. I think it would make things worse. I think it would have people even more checked out, believing that the presidency doesn't represent them. I, I think I kind of feel about the electoral college a little bit like the filibuster. That the argument is really one of convenience. That when 
the Electoral College is going against your side, you're against it. And when the filibuster is going against your side, you're against it. However, when things flip, you are the biggest proponent of it and you think it's great and must be maintained. So uh, I, I try to avoid these arguments that really flip based on who has the political advantage from the system in place. Uh, the fact of the matter is the Electoral College is one way to have different size states have representation in our system. It was one of the ways that they were able to get this very varied and large continent uh, together at the time. I recognize it was just 13 colonies and, not colonies and not yet a big continent, but it was heading in that direction. And I think the rules of the game have been set up this way. And one of the reasons the presidency is powerful, and, and again, I don't want to eliminate the powers of the presidency. I just want to appropriately cabin them. But one of the reasons the presidency developed in this way is because the Electoral College enabled a presidency to grow in this way. And it's a a system that Americans can buy into. Now, I understand there are people right now who don't like the Electoral College and they want it to be all about uh, direct representation. I don't think that would solve their problems. I don't think uh, the clouds would part and they'd suddenly be happy overnight. I think they'd find a a new gripe if that were to happen. Um. So you hate democracy. That's what you're saying. Um, <laughs> um, all right. Since, since uh, you brought Israel up, um, um, and I should tell viewers, I mean, Tevi will remember this, but uh, there used to be this commercial. Was it on Channel 5 or Channel 11? This public service announcement where the little kid is fishing with his grandpa and um, the kid mentions some friend of his, Tommy, let's say, and grandpa says, um, who's Tommy or don't know. It's, it's something like Tommy says, I'm, I'm anti-Semitic and, and the grandpa says, why? And he says, well, who's Tommy? And he says, Tommy's my Jewish friend. And the grandpa says, uh, well, if you think of him only as your Jewish friend and not just your friend, maybe he has a point. Something I'm totally butchering it because I haven't seen it in 46 years or something like that. Um, but Obviously, Tevi's not just my Jewish friend, um, for all the obvious, maybe some not obvious reasons. But as a friend of the dispatch, he has volunteered to provide Jewish information counseling um, because I name drop him so often about things Hebraic, him and John Pedorts. Um, and for your, in terms of your bona fides, despite your actual religious commitments and all of that, you were the Jewish outreach person for the Bush campaign at one point, were you not? Yes, and also the White House Jewish liaison under Bush. That's so right. I, That's I've right. Had official Jewish titles in my career, although I have specifically striven not to be a professional Jew, but just uh, you know someone who is religiously Jewish and outspoken about my Judaism and not shy about it. But professionally, I work in the regular secular world, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this was just this is one of many items on your resume, but I thought you know for people out there you might find it interesting. So. Um, what the hell's going on with Israel's election and, and the BB stuff? I mean, I have my own views on it, but um, uh, I, you're probably better equipped to give a brief explainer on what's going on and what you think of it. So first of all, as a historian, I think that leaders need to recognize that there are times to step down. And if you stay too long, you get voted out of power or you leave in, in ways that are uh, more ignominious than, than you would want. So I, I just think that's kind of a, a larger context. And I think leaders should think about that, whether you're heading an organization, a think tank, a, your CEO, or your head of, of a country, you got to think about the right time to go. Uh, Even Margaret Winston Thatcher, Churchill proves this, right? 
Winston Churchill especially proves it, yeah. I think, and uh, Margaret Thatcher as well as another example. And I think it's fortunate that we have the, the two-term limit for presidents in this country because it makes it less likely that you're going to head down that path. Uh, that said, I do think that Netanyahu has accomplished a great deal as prime minister of Israel. I think that the startup nation, this whole idea of Israel as an innovation center, is in part due to some of the economic reforms that he pushed forward as finance minister, because he was finance minister in, in addition to uh, prime minister. And actually, one of the people who influenced him in his economic thinking was Jack Kemp, who he met when he was deputy chief of mission in from Israel to Washington, D.C., and then I also think that uh, he recognized uh, in the Obama years that perhaps America is not the most constant ally of Israel, and he decided to diversify Israel's allies and has done a lot of work in terms of building relationships for Israel with other countries beyond just the U.S. and uh, some of those places, and you know, not not, our, not necessarily our favorite countries, like for example Russia. They have better ties with Russia than we do. Uh, he also built ties with China and Japan and India, and uh, the whole Abraham Accords is part of that strategic vision. He's also doing a lot of outreach in Africa. So I think he's done a lot of good things for Israel. Uh, that said, there's a, clearly a lot of people in Israel who are done with him and want him to move on. And that's why you have this kind of crazy quilt coalition where you have Naftali Bennett, who is by any definition a rightist, a, con a conservative, uh, who has allied with uh, Yair Lapid, who is a moderate kind of a technocrat, uh, left, slightly leftist, uh, secular type. And then you also have the Arab party in this very large coalition of, of multiple parties. And the only thing that unites them is we want Netanyahu to go. And it looks like they will be able to form a government that will have Netanyahu out of office, out of power. It's not 100% sure, but it looks pretty clear like that is going to happen. And I don't think that government survives to the so-called rotation of power where uh, Bennett has the prime ministership for the first two years and then Lapid will get it. I don't know if it survives that long because there are so many open questions. But Bennett is a smart guy. I heard him recently. I don't know if I'm allowed to mention other podcasts on this, but uh, Dan Senor uh, has the uh, post-corona podcast, which is also interesting. And he interviewed Bennett from a couple of years ago. And Bennett has this theory, the 70-70 theory, which is 70% of Israelis agree on 70% of things. And he's going to focus on those 70% of, of things. And it's a, it's not only a smart play. He mentioned it a couple of years ago because this was a rebroadcast of an interview. But it's the only way he's going to have this coalition survive if it is to survive. Um, I want to circle back on one thing you said. Curious about this, you know, the, the way it's covered in the right-wing press in America is that Jared Kushner and Donald Trump were visionary and genius in the Abraham Accords. The way it's covered in the left-wing or mainstream media is, oh, I guess there's this thing called the Abraham Accords and mumble, mumble, mumble. Um, I think you have to, like, I'm not as big critic of Jared Kushner, but you have to give the guy a good bit of credit and you have to give Trump a good bit of credit. Presidents, you can't all of a sudden say that foreign policy achievements that occur on a president's watch no longer go into their win column when that's the way we've scored these things for 200 years, you know? And um, so, you know, and I wrote a column, I remember writing a column saying, look, just suck it up. Give Trump credit for the Abraham Accords. They're a big deal. You can have an argument about how big a deal they are. That's all fine. But like, 
don't try to disparage this thing because it's like legitimately significant and it happened on his watch and he was involved and he wanted it to happen. Um, all that said, how much of the Abraham Accords do you think, if you were writing a history of this 20 years from now, you would say are really BB driven where Jared and those guys signed up for it and they deserve credit for greenlighting it rather than fighting it. And how much do you think it was actually driven by the U S administration and BB went along? I would give more credit to BB because obviously this is something he does full time and, and, and just credit to Israel for looking in this direction. Um, I also, you have to give some negative credit to Obama uh, because right. I think the Iran deal and the kind of the, the reset against Israel that they engaged in, I, I think that um, kind of opened up the eyes of some of the Gulf states uh, that maybe there there was a potential alliance here and then a recognition. And look, the Saudis have not yet joined the Abraham Accords. I hope they will. Uh, people who are involved in the previous administration tell me that if they had won, that the Saudis would have joined by now. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. But I think the Saudis kind of gave tacit approval to having secret talks with Israel. And I, so I, I, th I think you have to give them some credit, even if they haven't joined. Uh, but also, you do have to give credit to the previous administration in that they were willing to go along with this. I mean, there's that great clip from John Kerry that went ar around where, where Kerry said, there is absolutely no way ever, ever, ever that any negotiation with any Arab country happens without the, the Palestinians involved. And, and that's just not what happened. And uh, Kerry's view of things was and is wrong. So, uh, so I give some credit to the administration, I give some credit to uh, Bibi and Israel, and also give some credit to uh, the, the Gulf states who recognize that this is where things were headed. Um, okay, so back to the, the, the coalition stuff. Um, I saw a few pieces about this. I, I didn't dive deep into them, um, but there was chatter that the Shin Bet or whoever is warning that that they could have a January 6th kind of domestic uh, upheaval to keep BB in power. And BB, I saw some quotes from BB saying that if, if this purge happens, that it will shatter the international right, whatever the hell that is. Um, and now it seems, it seems to have disappeared from the headlines. Is it, was that ever a real thing? Was that just a, a trial balloon that fizzled or is it, is 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 a right wing populist mob uh, about to storm the Knesset? What's the, the what's the deal on all that? Look, it's hard for me to say in that I don't have access to the information the Shin Bet does, so they know a lot more what? than I do. <laughs> but it, it does strike me as I think it's unlikely that that's going to happen. I also think the the fact that the horror of January six happened means that they'll be more on the watch for it. And I also think that uh, you you can't overlook the fact that Netanyahu supporters are going after the weakest members of the coalition and calling them out and trying to get them not to join the coalition. Uh, part of that is politics, right? But part of it is also, uh, I think, a little unsavory if you're going after people personally, if you're going protesting in front of their house. I, I don't like this whole movement that we've had in the last 10, 15 years. I actually first noticed in, in the Bush administration when you'd have leftist protesters outside of Karl Rove's house and the Secret Service had to go out there to protect him. Obviously, it got worse in more recent years. Uh, you, you just, in a civil society, 
you don't get in someone's face if they disagree with you politically. I don't know why that's such a hard thing for us to understand these days. So if there is that kind of behavior, that's certainly uh, reprehensible and should be called out. But again, I think that the the, the awfulness of January 6th has opened the eyes of uh, law enforcement to these kinds of problems. And I hope that you don't have anything like this take place in Israel. So, um, uh, there's been a big wave of domestic anti-Semitic attacks in the U S it's for the first time. It kind of looks more like France than it has in my memory where you just have pro-Palestinian, whatever you want to call them, you know, uh, people randomly targeting Jews to beat up in the streets. It seems to have died down a little bit in the last couple weeks but when the gaza stuff was going on it was looking pretty ugly and bad um you know one of the things i think people fail to appreciate is that and some of this has to do with discrepancies in reporting rates and all these kinds of things but even for the first like 10 years after the after 9 11 i think virtually for nine of those 10 years anti-semitic attacks outpaced anti-muslim attacks and the press love to talk about rising tide of Islamophobia and anti-Muslim backlash and really never like to talk about the fact that actually Jews were targeted for violence a lot more and vandalism and all these things than, than, than Muslims were. Um, but it does seem to have, we seem to have crossed some kind of Rubicon on all of this. I mean, how, how, how worried are you about where this is going? Um, you know, I don't, I'm not going to name it, but you, you live in a fairly Jewish community and there's, there are there are more orthodox people around are they worried about it are the orthodox that you talk to like more concerned than you've seen it before or not yeah there is definitely a lot more concern about it and Jonah you remember the 70s when any party or event you went to early 80s uh, people talked about crime right that was kind of a common theme of conversation well i mean and fairness now, we were both like in the seventies, you know, single digits old. So we were, some we of the parties kids, but, we went but to, but you remember, right? At your <laughs> yeah, parents, no, house, parents, people would come was there on and the they would talk yeah, yeah. about who got mugged and yeah. whose house got robbed and whose car got robbed. And, you know, you and I have also talk, joked about our, our favorite show, the odd couple, how frequently uh, crime was a theme uh, because yeah. it, was, it was constantly happening. I'm hearing that more now today when a bunch of Jews in, in my neighborhood or elsewhere get together, they talk about this anti-Semitism. It's, it's, it is a concern. Uh, there, there was that incident in Florida where a group of pro-Palestinian whatevers uh, came in a pickup truck and started harassing this Jewish family from New Jersey, saying really awful things like, uh, we're going to rape you, we're going to rape your daughters, and all this stuff. And uh, it was only because a concerned citizen came by with a gun and brandished it against the attackers that the, those people left. Uh, there are also incidents in L.A. and New York, um, in my neighborhood, which you uh, you, you kindly declined to mention the name of it. Uh, th there were a couple of incidents where people got yelled at and in their face. And I have a friend who lives in downtown DC who is quite outwardly religious looking. And he said jokingly that if he were to report every time that somebody yelled something anti-Semitic at him, he'd personally increase the ADL statistics by 10%. <laughs> so there's something going on. Yeah. And it is unfortunate and it is worrisome. And you know, you, you've made the point on, on previous uh, episodes of this podcast that it is a little weird that people are screaming at uh, 
Orthodox Jews with, with big beards, you know, the, the so-called Orthodox Jews, I don't like that, that phrase, or the Haredi Orthodox, as if they are inv- creating Israeli policy. And it's pretty far from the truth and is not exactly. And, you know, and some of them, and not as many as, as you suggested, I think, on the revenue, but some of them are actually from sects that are hostile to Israel. So, uh, you know, there is a weirdness to it that makes you think it's not I'm critical of Israel's policies, but I'm actually anti-Semitic because I'm uh, I'm specifically targeting Jews. And I think there's kind of a different thing going on, Jonah, in that for a long time, there was a sense that people in Europe or in, in the old countries had their stuff. And, but when you came to America, you kind of got past it. Right. The, uh, you know, the, the, the British and the Irish guy, for example, uh, you know, they, they might be from, from warring uh, sects in Europe, but in America, you, you could be friends. And uh, there was actually a great line in Barry Weiss's book on anti-Semitism that in Europe, Catholics and Protestants killed each other. But in America, they have brunch <laughs> and bringing this kind of stuff where people who uh, have uh, pro-Palestinian th- sympathies are going after Jews in the streets. That, that seems like it's, it's a step away from the American tradition where we could get beyond our stuff from the old world uh, here in the new world. And, and I, I just find it a disturbing trend. And uh, look, I, I have a son, as you know, who's, um, who's 20 and he wears his kippah. I wear my kippah outside. And I never thought about it. In fact, I used to joke that I feel a lot more safe wearing my kippah in the southern states of the U.S. than in the south of France. Uh, but now I'm not sure that's true. Uh, not, not, that's not a dig on the South at all. I'm just saying it in in the U S in general, uh, when I went downtown yesterday and saw this friend, I I actually thought about it. Am I going to get harassed or people going to get in my face? Uh, fortunately nothing happened. And and I think it's still mostly pretty safe and I'm not changing my behavior at this point, but it's something that's on our minds. Yeah. I mean, I just, I I think the cognitive dissonance that is plaguing so much of the left these days on this and the media that sort of tries to paper over it. Um, the idea that somehow like if, if you spotted a, I mean, let's put it this way. The, I saw a video the other day of a Asian American UPS driver getting the crap kicked out of him by two people on the streets of San Francisco, two black people on the streets of San Francisco. Um, and, like if you see someone who's Asian and immediately think, okay, they're responsible for like the lab leak in China and deserve a beating, you're just using something as an excuse to beat someone up that you're bigoted against. And the, the degree to which people can't see this really is kind of shocking to me. If you see someone or you go seeking out to beat up a Jew because of something Israel is doing, like, does that mean Yemenis should go and find Saudis in America who they can go beat up. I mean, it's, it is such an atavistic tribalistic old world way of seeing things. And, um, I know that, you know, there are other forms of bigotry out there, but the, the, the way it singles out Israel and Jews to a standard that they don't that is not applied to pretty much any other um, nation. I, 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 as, as I think you know, I've never been much on this. If you criticize Israel or anti-Semitic stuff, but it, at some point, it feels like there is um, that that the oh, I'm just an anti-Zionist stuff is pretextual and or it's becoming impossible to separate the two, um, and that feels new to me too. Yeah, look, there's a pretty simple rule here. 
if if you criticize Israel, you're not necessarily anti-Semitic. But if you beat up Jews in the street because you don't like Israel, you're an anti-Semite. Yeah, that's a that's a good rule. That's a good rule. Or, but also, I mean, let's just be clear about it. Or if you make apologies for um, the people who do it, or if or if you want to broaden it out, you know, I wrote that G file a couple of weeks ago about um about geopolitical structural anti-Semitism. You know, if you think it's okay for the UN to single out Israel for behaving like any other country would, um, you got a problem that's specific to Israel, right? I mean, if you think that what Israel's doing is genocide, but you won't call what Saudi Arabia or China or any of these other countries are doing genocide, which are far worse than what Israel is doing, then it's really not about the genocide. It's about the fact that Israel's Jewish. And um, I understand it could be more complicated than that, but only because people want to make it more complicated than that. It, it, to me, it's mostly pretty simple. Yeah, look, and, and it's not new, right? I mean, let's go back to uh, uh, Pat Moynihan and the uh, Zionism is racism declaration. I mean, there, there was a sense that Israel gets singled out for this kind of stuff. And this doesn't mean that Israel's perfect and we can't uh, uh, criticize Israel. And, you know, look, I had some criticisms of Israel on, on, this, on this podcast. But uh, the, the fact is, if you're going after Israel in a way that you don't go after other countries, then you have to start asking questions about you. And if you're harassing or getting in the face of or beating up Jews in the street, it's really, it's, it's about you. It's not about Israel's policies. Um, the Zionism is racism stuff. My recollection of that, that that was all that has its roots firmly in Soviet propaganda stuff, right? I mean, that's, is that where it comes from or do the Soviets just leap on it and, and amplify it? Yeah. The, the, I mean, there was a coalition. Uh, it was the Soviets, but also, I mean, the, the Arab world, uh, was, I would say much more hostile to Israel back then. They were implacably opposed. And now we're having some splits in the Arab world, which I think is a good thing. And, uh, you know, it, it takes time. And uh, I think there's a recognition that a Israel's here to stay. B Israel's not looking to go and conquer Jordan or Egypt or the nations around it. They're, you know, they're, they're trying to live their lives, having a, a, a country and, you know, they, they have regular people there who are just trying to survive and, and get by. And obviously there's challenges with the Palestinians and how to uh, divvy up the land and how to do it in an appropriate way and maintain a democratic character and all that. But I think there's just a recognition uh, from the Arab countries or many of them that, uh, you know, maybe Israel's better as an ally than an enemy. But uh, I think the collapse of the Soviet Union co combined with this collapse of the anti-Israel Arab consensus uh, brought us to a post-Zionism as racism world. Um, right, let's just, uh, we'll, 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 we'll finish up on, on the Jews um, in, on, on, by moving to domestic stuff for just two seconds. Um, there was a lot of chatter 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, in the wake of nine 11 and the Bush president during the Bush presidency. And you were at the center of all that about the idea that younger conservative, Jew, younger Jews were moving towards conservatism, that, uh, the logic of the war on terror converted a lot of people, uh, to be, uh, a lot of pro-Israel liberals the war on terror was, it's difficult to maintain a case for Israel's survival in the wake of nine 11 and not see it about America. And there was a lot of churn and a lot of debate about it. That all seems to have vanished and it's gone back to an argument about how the trends among American Jews are very similar to the trends among, uh, American non-Jews, which is that the more religious you are, the more likely that you are to be 
moving politically rightward, but Jews, I believe, are still a lagging indicator on all that. So what, where, you know, where do we stand on the live like Episcopalians, vote like Puerto Ricans, you know, meter these days? Right. So that is the famous phrase by Milton Himmelfarb that really summed up Jewish politics for 50 years. I mean, Himmelfarb really should have, uh, you know, been got stock in, in that phrase uh, because it really lasted for so long. But there's this new Pew study out, and Pew did a study of the Jewish demographics and Jewish politics that shows that Himmelfarb is now finally out of date. The Himmelfarb concept was that Jews, because they're demographically wealthier and well-educated and live in the northeastern suburbs, uh, they he, he'd say they lived like Episcopalians, but they voted like Puerto Ricans, like a, uh, like a, an, a democratic ethnic group. And that's no longer the case because if you think about other demographics who are non-Jewish but who are wealthier, more likely to have gone to college, live in the Northeast in, in suburbs and in cities, uh, those groups would also vote Democratic today. So the fact of the matter is that non-religious Jews vote like other people in their demographic cohort. And it's the Orthodox Jews who are a little out of sync. You're, you're right to point to their religiousness. But the fact is that Orthodox Jews also have higher levels of secular education than average Americans, although lower levels than your average Jew. They are wealthier. They live in the Northeast and in suburbs and in cities. And so a group with those demographic characteristics would typically be seen to be a democratic group. But what we've seen in this Pew study, and this has been going on for a while and, and does indeed date back, I think, to the George W. Bush days, as you correctly note, what we're seeing is that group is now solidly Republican, whereas previously they could sometimes vote Republican, but they would flip back and forth. Now that group is solidly Republican, and it led to my attempt to update the Himmelfarb saying and saying that Jews vote like everybody else today in their cohort, but religious Jews live near hipsters but vote like Mormons. They might live in <laughs> Brooklyn, but but they vote like uh, Mormons in Utah. And that is the, the difference today, whereas Himmelfarb was talking about a, a difference that no longer exists. But those Orthodox Jews are still what percentage of the total Jewish population? Oh, that's also an interesting question. So they are about 10% of that's the overall Jewish population. 3% of Jews over 65 are Orthodox. However, if you look at younger Jews... Uh, I believe it's uh, Jews 18 to 29, it's more like 11, uh, it's gone from 11% back in 2013 to 17%, which as you know from our days working with Ben Wattberg, is a pretty big shift in only about seven years. So it is, uh, so younger Jews are now almost a fifth of the Jewish population and largely growing because the Jews, um, Orthodox Jews have more children, more likely to get married, and uh, more likely to stay in the religion. The, the intermarriage rates for Orthodox Jews, according to this Pew study is only 2%, which is actually lower than we had previously heard. It usually was closer to about 7%. So that's very low. It means it's basically, Orthodox Jews are basically not marrying out, whereas in the overall larger Jewish population, it's 47%. So about half of non-Orthodox Jews are marrying out. And I think that means that over time, you're going to have more Orthodox Jews. They are more Republican, they're more conservative, and they're going to be a larger and larger percentage of the overall Jewish population. That said, you got to watch out for straight line extrapolations, because if you recall in the 1950s, the straight line extrapolation said that today in 2020, there would be zero Orthodox Jews in America, and that is obviously not the case. So basically what you're saying is that the, the Troys and the Mandels will inherit American Judaism. Um, 
look, I, you know, I have four kids. They're about to have five. So, you know, I, I don't know other, I don't know a lot of reformed Jewish families that have kids, uh, that number of kids. Agreed. All right. Since you mentioned Wattenberg, uh, longtime listeners know that I replaced you as Wattenberg's research assistant 12, 13,000 years ago. Um, Wattenberg was known as probably one of the media's most uh, prolific optimists. He wrote a book called The Good News is the Bad News is Wrong. Did you work on that? That was before your time, right? It was before my time, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, you just wrote a piece for The Examiner that uh, waxed Wattenberg-esque. Uh, why don't you make your case? It's, it'll be familiar to readers of Suicide of the West, um, but why don't you make, make, make your case for it? And then I have some, not pushback, but some questions for you. No, please push back. And our friend Vin Canato also uh, sent me an email with some of his pushback. So we can, we can talk about that as well. But let me make the case first. There's lots of conservatives grumbling about what's going on today. There's certainly reasons for concern. There's definitely problems in our politics. However, what I tried to do is look at five areas where your day-to-day life is now better than it was previously. And the five areas I picked were food, information, access, entertainment, although it's nuanced, we have to talk about it, uh, medicine, and travel. So if you want to go travel somewhere, I remember the days, and you, you and I probably went on some of these trips, where you had to have a map, the map in the lap when you were driving somewhere. It's a heck of a lot easier to get someplace today with GPS and Waze. It's easier to get your tickets, it's easy, uh, your airline tickets. It's easier to uh, get an Uber when you go someplace. I mean, there are so many ways in which technology has improved travel. I and mean, you talked about your daughter recently getting her license. I have a daughter who just got her license. And boy, is it a good thing that she has a backup camera because I don't know what she <laughs> would do in reversing without it. And it's not just her. I mean, you see a lot of these uh, teenage drivers who uh, really benefit from just that small technological improvement. So travel is better in many ways. Uh, information, I have this quote in there from Heather McDonald. She says, all these woke students who are talking about how oppressed they are, they have what, soul, what, what Faust sold his soul for, which is knowledge. It's all at the touch of your fingertips. You can get the entirety of the Bible with many different types of interpretations. You can get all the works of Shakespeare. You can get the works of Homer. If you choose, if you want to go in that direction, there's so much information out there that's great and uplifting. Now, I know a lot of people use it for negative reasons, but Uh, And I know that porn is highly used uh, on the internet, but if you want to find goodness and uplifting things uh, out there, you have much better access to it than we have had in the past. And I know my own religious life is enhanced by the access that I have to all kinds of uh, biblical interpretations and and lectures or podcasts uh, that I can hear about uh, religious themes. And so, uh, so there's a lot more out there uh, that you can benefit from uh, in medicine. Uh, not only do, do I think it's amazing that we got the COVID vaccine in largely nine months, maybe nine months to a year, depending on how uh, you, you time it. But I think we're also on the cusp of some really great additional technological improvements and medical improvements. And I know when I was in the Bush years, we were working on the pandemic preparedness. And we talked about how we had to move away from egg based vaccines to cell-based vaccines. And now we're looking at mRNA vaccines, which really are amazing and could be game changers in other areas besides just COVID. So I I think that a lot of conservatives are uh, wringing their hands these days and griping about how terrible everything is. And there are certainly things to complain about, but I also think it's worth taking a step back, looking at the positive. And I think this is a really important point. I'll, I'll close with this. And this is how I close the examiner piece is talk about how these things came about. They came about through a lot of 
American ideals of hard work and education and recognizing linear thinking, all the things that the woke left is trying to tell you are inappropriate today. And I think it's a hard case to go to the American people and say, well, let's reject linear thinking, and then you're going to get new improvements in medical technology or new iPhones or new accesses to information or travel or, or entertainment or whatever. So I think that the conservatives have a good case to make about how their policies can help continue to make things better. And also, well, the thing we've learned from uh, Ben Wattenberg is uh, he always was, would make the case that the optimistic candidate is the one who's much more likely to win. And I showed through a study that was done by University of Pennsylvania that that has happened in presidential elections the vast majority of time, the uh, more optimistic candidate wins. So I think there's no angle in conservatives just being negative and griping. I think they need to look at the positive, but also talk about how their policies can bring about more positive. Okay. <laughs> I don't disagree with a big, big chunks of that. You know, I mean, there's a reason why I called liberal democratic capitalism a miracle. I have this whole appendix in suicide of the West. It's very much like Steven Pinker's whole book on this stuff. Um, huge amounts of progress, you know, even from, you know, the, the I'm constantly tweeting out stuff from the Cato site, uh, run by Marion Tupi, a friend of mine, um, on human progress where they, 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 they wax Wattenberg and uh, Julian Simon esque on how much better people have things today. And in many objective terms, in terms of you actually, what you and I are capable of doing on a day to day basis, we are richer than the richest people. Um, you know, the Carnegie's and the melons and all they had bigger houses, right? Square footage of houses and, um, a few other of those kinds of material metrics. Um, you know, uh, they're richer, but like in the ability to travel, the ability to cure diseases, you go down a long list. We are by, we are essentially trillionaires in, in terms of what wealth, what people thought wealth and luxury could buy you. There's that story in the Count of Monte Cristo where, uh, the guy wants to show how rich he is. Um, so he serves two kinds of fish. Um, and that is considered just the most ostentatious Veblen esque conspicuous consumption imaginable. So I agree with you on all that stuff. The problem, as I th think you probably know, is the people who should give a rat's ass don't really give a rat's ass anymore. And, um, there's so much, it's not just ingratitude, which is, you know, the major point in, in my book. There's also this, I don't want to, again, do the sort of Nietzschean resentment thing, but there is this redefinition of terms to make this kind of freedom seem bad, right? That it's deracinating and it, dep it, it deprives us of meaning and a place and uh, the conveniences of life no longer make the institutions of family as necessary as they once were because institutions are supposed to solve problems and we can now outsource problem solving to technology and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, just yesterday I saw Patrick Deneen tweet out this long thread from the socialist guy about how imperative it is that we decouple job creation from the private sector. Um, and it was just an amazing, I mean, it was like, it's one of those kind of tweet threads that you read it and you're, you know, like about how obviously we should be converting all of our power plants to cat power. 
And, and you're like, this is really compelling and interesting. And then you're like, wait a second, you can't get cats to tur- move a turbine. <laughs> um, um, so, I mean, I, I get what you're trying to do and I get what, you, and I agree with a lot of the things that you're saying, but the, the problem I have run into for three years of doing this now in remnant fashion is that the evidence I want to bring up about how good we've got it, they now see as our large chunks of the intellectual right now see as no longer evidence in favor of my argument because they don't care about those things anymore. Look, I, I don't disagree that there are people out there making bad and wrong arguments. I mean, you think back to the 60s and some of the things you were saying with what the left saying is, you know, there's a guy, Marcuse, was talking about repressive tolerance and freedom is bad because people have freedom to do what they want. So there are bad arguments out there, but you name your podcast The Remnant because you recognize there's a lot of people making bad arguments and you're pushing back about it. And I'm happy to go on and be a gold jacket member here because I think <laughs> it's a good, this is a good venue for pushing back against bad arguments. And I think that it's our obligation as people who want to be seen as public intellectuals or commentators or whatever you want to call us, is we've got to push back against bad and dumb ideas and show not only that our ideas are better, but that our ideas bring about benefits to individuals and benefits not just material. Because look, you know, uh, when I was talking to the editors of the Examiner about this, they said you got to make sure that this isn't just oh now we have avocado toast, everything is fine. And that's not at all what I'm saying. But what what I am saying is that people have the ability to live lives in a better way if they so choose today, more than we've ever seen in any other time in human history. And we want to encourage people to live in that better way. And let me talk briefly about our, our mutual friend, Vin Canato, who is a, a terrific guy. And he said very nice things about my piece, but he also said, well, religious observance is down, uh, happiness is down, and drug use is up. And I don't disagree with, with him on those things, but there's an element of choice in those things. And I think it is our goal, but also the the job of uh, politicians who are doing their job right to encourage people to make the right choices and not the wrong choices, make choices that will enhance their lives and make their lives better and make the lives of people around them better as well. And so that's what I'm trying to do here in this piece. If you wanted me to go and talk about all the things that are negative out there and gripe and moan, you know, I'm sure I could find a whole bunch of things that are, are negative, but I'm really trying to focus more on the positive and how the positive things out there are a direct result from the American way of life as you and I understand it. Um, I hear you. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. Uh, I just, uh, um, I, I've just been, I'm not disheartened. I'm just a little preemptively dis- exhausted with a lot of people who, um, have been working so hard to, overthrow the you know the old metrics about what is good in life and and you know and and to talk about how liberty no longer really matters and constitutionalism is a dead letter and we should actually just be ends justify the means about everything and um you point out well you know people are you know they're freer they have they're richer they're they've got all these things um uh, free speech is freer than it's ever been before, and it descends into this weird miasma of paranoia and weirdness very, very, very quickly, and it becomes exhausting to argue with a lot of these people. And um, 
Um, but you know, I, I am, I am glad that you're going to bang your head against the wall on this for a while because I could use the company. Um, so let me, can let me, we talk about one aspect sure, of it that sure. I really want your insight in is the entertainment piece of it. Because what I argue is that here's one thing where things are affirmatively worse. I think that the big studio release offerings from Hollywood are affirmatively worse than they were when we were growing up in the seventies and eighties. And I've talked to you about how I'm watching a whole bunch of older movies with my son and just really marveling at how great movies have been in the past when they were focused, they were focused on plot and character and story and trying to tell things in a universal way. And so I think that the Hollywood big studio weekend release offerings are worse today than they've been in the past. But I also argue and again, here's where I really want your insights, is that you have access to so much other stuff that is so much better. And TV today, uh, and you know, it's hard to define what TV is. It was, you know, network TV, I'm still not a fan of. But the TV offerings you can get, whether it's uh, HBO, and I really like that Mayor of Easttown show, and you and I should talk about it, uh, and um, the uh, on Netflix and Amazon Prime, I just think that it's just better. It's more tightly written. It's... Uh, uh, the, the plot moves better. It's it's more interesting. You don't have to wrap up everything in the last five minutes with a canned laugh. Although I knew you you knew the names of everybody on the on the laugh tracks of all these shows. <laughs> um, so I, so I, I think that while studio offerings are worse today, I think overall the entertainment offerings that we have before us, the choices we have, are better. And I just want to get your take on that as an entertainment guru that I look to. Um, you're very generous and all that. Um, I I. We have a we have an unwritten policy here that we never say Sonny Bunch was right, um, <laughs> but uh, he did write a piece about uh, the golden age of television, you know, for the the Standard a while back, and um, I agree with a lot of it. I, I think you know Breaking Bad, it's really started with, um, I argue with basically Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue, and then in earnest with The Sopranos and The Wire and Breaking Bad the idea of basically turning TV shows into long form novels where they weren't episodic and, and self-contained every time, but instead had long character arcs over, over seasons or even multiple seasons. That all stuff is great. I have a slightly different take on it now. Um, even though I, I, I agree with you about, you know, the, the studio stuff being worth part of the problem. I think, and I, I think this was like the first or second piece I wrote for national review over 20 years ago was, about the the Matthew Broderick version of Godzilla, um, where the problem is is that studios increasingly don't make movies for Americans. They make movies for a global market. And that's why the smaller movies tend to be better, right? Because they're actually not planning on, you know, making a lot of money. And aesthetically, you make a whole bunch, or artistically, whatever, you make a whole bunch of different choices when you're thinking about the global market. I just saw the sequel to the the, the the sequel to Quiet Place, and it's really good. It's got some serious plot issues that I'm that I'm surprised I'm not angrier about because I really enjoyed the movie. Um, but as a movie, it's a brilliant, you know, conception. And I, I won't give any spoilers, but the because this is from the first one as well. The the premise is that there are these horrible monsters that presumably are aliens from outer space who basically work solely on sound, and they have super hearing. And so everyone has to be incredibly quiet and mostly use gestures and facial expressions and hand and sign language and that kind of stuff, which is a brilliant conceit for a global audience because it means there's much less dubbing, much less closed captioning and all that kind of stuff. But that's also the same argument for, you know, why superhero movies do so well and why they keep bringing in 
you know, tried to make Godzilla and King Kong into things. And it's that these, these action movies and, um, that particularly action movies where it's a lot of CGI, so you can redo people's lips or they have masks on. So you can't tell that they're not speaking that language. Um, these play for a global market and the American domestic market just becomes less and less important for Hollywood. And I think that's one of the things that explains why the streaming stuff is so much better is that they're made for much smaller markets, much more targeted niche markets, and they're trying to compete on quality rather than mass appeal. And, um, and the only other thing I'd say about the, 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 the bad studio releases, some of that, you know, got to come a little slack. It's just COVID. No one wanted to come out with movies that really need to be seen in a theater if no one was going to theaters, but um, but I, I think glo globalism, uh, has been bad for the quality of Hollywood movies. Yeah. So, so just two minor points of pushback. One is before COVID you looked at the list of the Oscar nominees and you said, what are these movies? I've never heard of them. They're, they're not interesting. Uh, they seem more like, uh, woke, uh, expressionism rather than something that, that has any kind of wide appeal. Uh, and interest to to <laughs> to to a wide range of film goers. The second thing is, I'm really wary of using the word action movies to describe some of the superhero movies and some of the and the Godzilla movies, because as you and I know, uh, action movie refers to a specific type of movie, a specific genre, and we're talking about the diehards and the Lethal Weapons and the uh, the Schwarzenegger and the Stallone movies of the 80s and 90s that I think you and I have a particular affinity for. And I did like that movie, uh, Nobody. Uh, that, that recently came out that I thought yeah, was I kind of it a, too. A, a hat tip to that those that era and also the um, the Angelina Jolie movie with the terrible title about uh, those who come to kill you or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was also a, a good action movie with some with some plot questions. Uh, but I, I think that Hollywood has kind of moved away from that type of action movie, and I, I found that unfortunate. You know, it's, it's funny. I, I got into a conversation with when um, Charles Grodin died. Um, I got into a little Twitter conversation with Terry Teachout. Um, you know, was the theater critic, most famously, I think, with the Wall Street Journal, writes a lot for commentary. Good guy. Um, he had never seen Midnight Run, the um, the Grodin. The Grodin De Niro movie. De Niro movie, which is a great movie. I recently rewatched it, and I was surprised there were fewer laugh out loud moments than I remembered. But it was still, it's still a great paced movie. And we got into a little conversation about how they used to the, the, there used to be like this slice of the action movie genre that managed to do comedy without being slapstick. You know that it was, um, uh, I and mean, it's amazing how many f bombs there are in in Midnight Run. I was just shocked. Um, but that managed to do comedy while not losing its cred as um, as an action movie. I think like Die Hard obviously leans more towards action than comedy, but it, the, there are a lot of funny moments in, in Die Hard. Um, the Beverly Hills, also Cop Beverly Hills Cop 48 franchise, hours. you know, um, cool. there was that Billy Crystal. Um, oh God, what is his name? Um, movie cool runnings. That was actually a pretty good action comedy movie. Um, and that and the Schwarzenegger movies also red red heat and the like. I mean, he always yeah. Had some and then it, it went too far um, with that last action hero. It was just too yeah. too meta, way too meta. And uh, um, and I think that was his jump the shark movie. Um, but 
that also seems to have just sort of disappeared. I mean, I guess the rock does a little of that. Um, but, um, it's, it's something I wish would come back. I don't know where I was going with this, but, um, no, I, I'm with you. I agree. Uh, I got to tell a quick uh, and good midnight run story, which is, uh, Charles Grodin obviously uh, died recently and he was asked about midnight run and working with De Niro and De Niro, uh, he said was a method actor. So he would go out with cops and work on how, how you uh, roust someone and arrest them and how you, you know, find somebody who's on the lam, which is what uh, De Niro's character does in, uh, in, in Midnight Run. <laughs> and uh, De, uh, Broden's character was a, an embezzler who took all this money from the mob. And he said, yeah, I didn't bother practicing by stealing money from the mob. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was a big fan of Groden, the actor. I had to give a lot of it back when he had that horrible MSNBC show that nobody remembers except for me um, in the late 90s. Um, it was just terrible. Anyway, all right, we're, we're, we're going long on time here. Um, I was going to ask you about the lab leak stuff. Um, very quickly, um, you worked at HHS. You wrote a book, Shall We Wake the President? You're fluent in a lot of these things. I cannot make up my mind. I kind of feel like the, I kind of feel like Anthony Fauci is just another one of these things from the pandemic, like mask wearing and, you know, uh, and vaccines where the people at the margins wildly overstate their case, both pro and con, um, you know, like I don't like masks, but I don't hate masks either. I wore masks when I thought it was necessary or when I thought it was like a social you know, etiquette kind of thing. I wear them very little now because I'm vaccinated and I don't see the reason for it. Um, I don't think Fauci has done an amazing job, but I also don't think he's an evil mastermind villain either. And just, I'm just sort of wondering where do you come down on the Fauci stuff and on this lab leak thing in particular? Yeah, I'm pretty with you on these issues, surprisingly. But here, here's my tons on Fauci. And I know Fauci. I worked with him at HHS. He's a dedicated public servant. He's uh, dedicated his whole life to try and fight against infectious diseases. But I think there's a problem with public health writ large, public health community, who they feel like they can tell you what you need to know at the time you need to know it. And there's this sense that, well, the lab leak story wasn't convenient to talk about, so we can't talk about it. And masks, let's initially tell people not to get masks because we don't want them to be taken from the frontline health workers. And again, I recognize, I understand why they're doing this because they think there's a, a larger, greater good, but it erodes trust in the public health and it erodes trust in the pronouncements from public health. And one of the things I focus on in my book, Shall I Wake the President, is the number one thing you have to have in a disaster is the trust of the American people. You have to be able, if you tell the people shelter in place, then you have to have a reason for it and it's got to be based on the reality of what's going on. And if you get a sense that people don't trust what's coming out from either the White House podium or public health, then you start to have some real problems. And we saw that in this last year with multiple actors who I think were saying things that, that, that either weren't trustworthy at the time or were later revealed to be something that wasn't accurate and I, I just don't like the sense of we'll tell you what we need to what you need to know at the time because we see a larger benefit and, and i think that uh, uh, that fauci has unfortunately fallen into that uh, a couple of times and i think that's one of the reasons why there's this divergence of opinions about it and so related on this um like i think vaccine passport's a terrible 
term. And I think people met, screwed up presenting it that way. But at the same time, like, like, so I, uh, what's his name? Um, Greg Abbott just came out with this thing saying that no business and no government institution can demand to have any vaccination information. And I assume I haven't looked at it closely. I assume that there's carve outs for at least hospitals, right? Um, that would be truly insane. Um, but, and so I tweeted this thing, you know, are you going to ban no shirt, no shoes, no service soon too? And a lot of people, um, from that slice of conservatism are now very mad at me. And they're like, I, this guy, I can't remember his name, but this guy from I, daily caller world or Breitbart world or something was like, I can't believe this is the guy who wrote liberal fascism. And I, I honestly don't see the inconsistency. I am not calling for vaccine passports, but I have 0.0 problem with like, say cruise ships requiring that passengers be vaccinated um, or that their crew be vaccinated. And I don't understand why this has become the thing that it is. The Fox world types, they are really hyping on the culture war stuff of this new Gallup. I think it's Gallup may have been a pew, uh, poll that shows that large numbers of like Democrats want people to like still quarantine and wear masks, even if they've been vaccinated and look how crazy they all are and blah, blah, blah. And I think that's all nuts. What they're not focusing on is that a lot of the people who want the economy to completely open up and not have masks or any of that kind of stuff anymore. A big, I think 59% of them also say they're never going to get vaccinated. And I think that's nuts. And so again, it's one of these weird things where at the, at the, at the far ends of the spectrum, people are imposing political things on it that, that I don't think should be imposed. But do you have, I mean, is there a legitimate, I mean, are, do you agree with Abbott and DeSantis in, in this stuff about banning businesses from being able to require vaccination for their employees or for their customers or that kind of thing? Is, is there something I'm missing that I don't understand? Well, first of all, I think you're right that vaccine passport is a terrible term right? and it should not be used. Uh, second of all, look, I went to a baseball game recently where you had to show proof of vaccination and I had no problem with it. And I was glad that the, the baseball stadium, the Yankee stadium said, uh, we're not going to let people in without vaccines because you know, <laughs> that way we can keep you safe. So, uh, I just, I get a little uncomfortable with conservatives who start to ban businesses from doing things because I, I don't really think that's the conservative way. In Israel, if you are vaccinated, you get this green bracelet. And if you have that green bracelet, you can go out and live your life and do things. And I don't really have a problem with that. Again, I'm not for a government issued vaccine passport. You know, I think the government has too much say in our lives anyway. But if private actors want to say, you can come into my home, you can come into my business, without a mask, if you have a vaccine. I mean, look, I'm doing that all the time. When my daughter or kids want to have friends over, I say, are they vaccinated? And they say, well, yeah, they are. And then they come into my home and I'm totally fine with it. So I just think we need to give more space to let private actors make private decisions. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, honestly, I just, I, I, I don't get it. I, I, and where were people screaming about? I mean, we, a lot of conservatives used to make fun of people who were anti-vaxxer for saying, you know, the people who didn't want to get their kids vaccinated for school, right, for measles or for whatever, this was like harebrained stuff. It was disproportionately on the left. Um, and now the idea of a cruise ship wanting to have 
everyone be vaccinated to be on it, that's considered, you know, fascist. And I, 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 I don't see it. I mean, I honestly don't see it. I mean, again, I could see it if this was a one size fits all policy from the federal government or even from state governments, but it's neither of those things. And it just, I feel like a lot of people are, they're listening to a different soundtrack than I am. And I'm trying to figure out what it is. It's just very strange. Yeah. Can I just say something as someone who is somewhat of an expert in these issues and is, I haven't vaccinated. My wife is vaccinated. All my kids are vaccinated. I'm pro-vaccination. I was pro-vaccination before we had this vaccine. So I wasn't someone who was anti-vax with measles, mumps, rubella, or any of that. But this vaccine is safer and more effective than any of the previous vaccines that people were arguing about. So uh, this is a safe vaccine. It is an incredibly effective vaccine. And I urge people to go out and take it so we can get past this. And I think one of the lessons we learned from COVID, which is a little frightening to me, is that the NPIs, as they're called, the non-pharmaceutical interventions, really were not going to get us out of this morass. And it's really only the vaccine that has solved the problem. And uh, you know, there's a great piece in commentary this month by that, that guy, uh, Jim Meggs, about the pharma companies and how they should be uh, honored and credited and thanked for this. And usually all they get in response, especially from the left, is criticism and guff and told how tor- terrible and rapacious they are. Uh, but it is the vaccines that have gotten us to this point where we are largely, not completely, but largely out of COVID. And I, I think that's something, A, we should celebrate and recognize, but B, people who are still holding out and not getting it, uh, unless you have some special health reason for not doing it, I would urge people to go out and get it. Yeah. No, I mean, the anti, the anti-pharma stuff is a perfect illustration of my point about ingratitude. I mean, like literally the pharmaceutical companies, but for the pharmaceutical companies, you were, there were lots of people who would have died. And the response is, oh, we really got to tax their crap out of them. You know, I mean, or take away, no, or, or worse, take away their, their intellectual property. I yeah. mean, that is much worse. I think it's nuts. I mean, it's absolutely nuts. And um, and I, you know, and I, 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 I'm baffled by it. I mean, I'm utterly baffled. It's like there's all now this, this, and you're going to hear a lot more about it, about how terrible it is that America got so vaccinated before vaccination rates in Africa or South America, um, got higher and. I'm all in favor of the Biden administration and the West or whoever, you know, and and since it looks like the Chinese vaccines are kind of crappy, um, that us sending vaccines to the world as best we can. And if the pharma companies get crazy richer because of it, great. Doesn't bother me in the slightest, but like the idea, I mean, it's sort of like you wouldn't have cheap cell phones if really rich people weren't willing to be early adopters and pay 10 grand for a crappy giant cell phone. Right. You need rich countries to create the vaccine in the first place. And then um, and then like expecting a rich country that developed the vaccine, took the risks to develop the vaccine, that it would not take care of its own population to a large extent first before it like helped out the rest of the world is just utterly naive. It's like the airline thing where the oxygen masks come down. They tell you, put the mask on yourself first before you try to help other people. It just, it's like politics 101 that we were going to like get our people vaccinated quicker and faster than we were, you know, people in Botswana or Guatemala or whatever. But now we should help those people as much as we conceivably can. I just have a huge problem with people saying, see, this is proof of Western racism. No, it's proof that we have these incredibly skilled and impressive technological abilities that come from the private sector and the kind of stuff that you're talking about. That made it possible. Now let's get to work helping people who don't have that stuff. 
Right. More succinctly, it's proof that our system works. Yeah. And if the fact that America was at the leading edge of developing this vaccine and got its people vaccinated first and has an economic boom as a result, I am all for that. I think it's great. I think it's just more proof that the Western way of life really is the most effective and the best way to go about things. And I, I got to just give a shout out to Suicide of the West, which I read. I thought it was an excellent achievement. And, uh, you know, it really helped inform my thinking on things. And I may be the person who tweeted hashtag Suicide of the West more than any other person. <laughs> I appreciate that. Oh, so funny thing. So, you know, my wife is on Twitter. Um, and she's a creeper, though. She doesn't she's still a lurker, right? not a creeper. Creeper, okay. creeper. <laughs> more pejorative than lurker. Sorry, sorry uh, lurker. much like AB Stoddard, sorry, Jess. who, who uh, <laughs> will hear this and text me when she gets to this point. Uh, but uh, I was working on something for her on her computer last night, and I opened up her Twitter, and like her Twitter handle is out there, and like I started reading the stuff from her mentions, and I was like, "What are mentions?" Like she's never checked in. <laughs> the eight years she's been lurking on Twitter that people have actually used her, her Twitter handle and including me, I've said nice. Things oh, absolutely. About and that was the funny thing is I started reading her this stuff from like 2014, that you were tweeting out and she was like, Oh my God, I never thanked Tevi for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, apologies if you haven't gotten the note from Jess for something that you tweeted about a title nine piece she wrote seven years ago or whatever. But, um, anyway, with that, Tevi, always a pleasure to have you on. Obviously, we'll have you back. Um, um, you know, at some point, I should have you and Pod on, and we'll just and we'll do a sort of um, a full Ask the Jews episode, um, and, or have Vin on, and we could talk about wh whether we should be pessimistic or optimistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I've, we can have Vin on, or but you know, if we have if we got you, Vin, and Pod on, we could just basically talk about. 1970s New York, even though, you know, Vin was what? He was from Armonk or something like that, which doesn't really count. Or uh, is it Armonk? Yeah, he's from Armonk. Yeah, I wonder right. if Queens counts. So, well, I mean, it's another country as far as I'm concerned. But um, um, I was talking to a, a, a rabbi that you know recently, and he was like, you should come to New York and visit, you know. Um, um, there's this new movie out about my neighborhood by this, this Lynn Miranda guy. And, uh, apparently my neighborhood, you know, it, it, it in Washington Heights had no Jews <laughs> in the seventies or eighties. Cause if you watch the trailers, it's all like Puerto Ricans and Dominicans or whatever. Nothing wrong with any of that. I mean, it's his nostalgic story of his own childhood, but like Washington Heights had, had substantial numbers of, uh, well, of, it's the home of Yeshiva university. So it's, uh, it was just kind of funny anyway. All right, man, Tevi, thank you for being on. We will have you back and, uh, um, um, always good to have you. Thank you. Okay. So, uh, my friend Tevi has, uh, left the studio and, um, a bunch of stuff we could have talked about. I mean, Tevi and I can talk about almost anything. Um, I have, I have more questions um, than I had time for, but it's always good to have them on. And um, this this was recorded earlier um, because uh, we were trying to get stuff in the can. Um, I don't think anything was on there that was too dated or won't hold up well. Uh, you know, and, and hopefully the stuff. I mean, there will still be people who don't like Jews. Um, Israel will still be controversial. People will still be yelling about Ant Anthony Fauci. Um, and all the stuff we said about movies is not exactly, um, um, too time dependent. So, 
Uh, but I figure I should let you guys know that because I, I keep nothing secret from listeners of the Redneck Podcast. And uh, anyway, thanks for listening. And um, please keep the feedback coming. We really do pay attention to it and, 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 and appreciate it. And, um, you know, the feedback on the Drive Time podcast has been uh, both helpful and amusing. And we can talk about that at another time. Um, and thanks again to my buddy, Tevi Troy. And um, I'll see you guys next time. The Hechlet Law is a podcast. <laughs>